Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. The culinary landscape is ever evolving. So you'll hear from chefs and pastry aficionados, restaurateurs, molecular gastronomers, food bloggers and enthusiasts, cookbook authors, and more on this show. We'll dish on fabulous food, wine and spirits, travel, health, and living the best life. So I hope you won't miss a Sunday of delicious conversation with me. The most passionate food and wine lovers listen here. And if you're a food enthusiast, well, then you're definitely in the right place. Fresh strawberries are perfuming the markets right now, right? And the good life this month is a bowl of cherries, literally. I love the sweet corn and the tomatoes, and soon your neighbors will be forcing on you the zucchini that have overtaken their gardens. Summer is no doubt here, and we are celebrating. I have lots of gastronomic inspiration at chefjamie.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And if you miss to show or you're looking to master a particular topic, you can always find my podcasts with outlined show descriptions on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. So seeing that summer is sizzling, I bet your garden is too. So why not use up those herbs to make the perfect pesto? I love pesto. It's bright. It's vibrant. It's like the one ingredient wonder that makes everything taste good. It adds liveliness to chicken salad. It makes penne taste fresh and light. It tops eggs excellently. I love it as a super simple marinade for shrimp on the barbie. It's also wonderful on polenta or alongside grilled vegetables. And really, my list goes on and on. But however you use pesto, you definitely want to make it your own, right? So how can you master pesto? Well, pesto requires very few ingredients. It comes together in, what, less than 10 minutes. It's very flexible too. So you can play with the flavors. You can create your own perfect version. But the classic pesto includes basil and pine nuts, garlic, olive oil, parmesan, salt, and pepper. But taste, in my opinion, always trumps tradition. So I think that you should definitely think of pesto as a jumping off point. Now, you want to use the freshest basil and you always want to look for small tender leaves because they make the best flavorful pesto. And you don't want the garlic to overpower the basil. So I always suggest that you mince the garlic first, whether by hand or in the food processor, so that it blends in really well. And then for those that don't like the pungent garlic flavor, you can always use a roasted garlic clove or two for a smoother, more mellow tone. Now, pine nuts are essential in my opinion, and I like them toasted, but you can use them raw if that's the flavor you're after. But then again, you can always substitute walnuts or even pistachios. Ooh, those are my favorite. Pistachio basil pesto on shrimp, outrageous. And then to amp up the pepperiness of your pesto, 
I suggest that you use pecorino cheese in place of Parmesan. I like a pecorino romano blend, in fact. And then sometimes I'll even add a few leaves of arugula if I want it really bitey. Then the other essential is lemon zest or lemon juice. I really like the fresh finish that it adds, albeit it is not a classic addition, but no one ingredient should really dominate. Now, pesto is your personal interpretation, and I like a mix of herbs. Let's say your garden is growing basil, cilantro, and mint. Use them to your heart's content. Use what you like, and then consider that the easiest basil is made in a food processor. It's faster and it's more consistent. So you start with the nuts and the garlic, then add the basil, then you drizzle in the olive oil, you mix in the cheese and salt and pepper. And you don't want to overmix because you want a bit of texture in your pesto, right? As for storage, by the way, fresh pesto always tastes better, but you can make it ahead of time and you can cover it with a little bit of olive oil in an airtight container and it stays fresh in the refrigerator for at least a few days. But did you know that you can freeze pesto? So I make a big batch during the summer at the end of the summer when the basil's just completely overgrown. And then I'll actually place the pesto rather in Uh, little ice cube trays and then I'll freeze them till solid and then I pop them out into a um, Ziploc bag and they stay for at least a couple of months. So now you are a pesto master, right? And all that's left is a grand garden to cook with. All right. I'd love your pesto inspiration, by the way. What do you do? Your ideas. You can find my best ideas at chefjamie.com, but you can always email me direct so that we can talk all things culinary. My email address is jamie at chefjamie.com. All right, it is time to give you the lowdown on this week's food news, keeping you in the know on hot topics when it comes to the culinary world. So here goes. The restaurant's most expensive wine bottles were cited this past week, restaurants across the country, that is. And in my hometown of Los Angeles, California, specifically Santa Monica, Melise Restaurant, uh, proprietor and chef Josiah Citrone, the two Michelin-starred restaurant, by the way, actually reigns supreme. They have 2002 and 2003 Domaine de la Romanée Conti in their collection, available for $23,000 per bottle. Yes, you heard me right. The wine actually comes from a five-acre vineyard dating back to the Romans, and it's been known for many things such as the ability to restore life to the dying. So for $23,000 a bottle, are you in? (laughs) Second on the food news this week, Nabisco has released a key lime pie Oreo. Yes, an Oreo cookie that tastes like key lime pie. It has that light green filling. And I have to tell you, it tastes exactly like a key lime pie. I got my hands on some cookies available for a limited time. And the cookie itself actually has a graham cracker cookie rather than a chocolate one on the exterior. And they're currently available nationwide, but only for the summer season. So I suggest that you test the flavor for research sake, of course. Check it out. The key lime pie Oreo is now available. And If you hadn't heard, Pope Francis spoke at an open-air mass in Bolivia just this past Thursday, and according to ABC News, 
he jumped into a nearby Burger King to change his clothes. Now, the Pope actually did reserve the Burger King three days in advance because of its closeness to the masses stage. The Burger King actually filled the restaurant with decorations fit for a king, or more specifically, a pope. And the pope got dressed, rounded up by his posse, and then he spoke to the masses in Bolivia. Now, the burger restaurant's owner said that business immediately boomed. It is no surprise because the pope's presence was there. But the restaurant got to keep all the fancy furniture that was used in the mass. So if you've ever grabbed a a whopper, and taken a picture in the Pope's holy chair, well, then you did it in Bolivia. Pretty cool, right? So that's this week's food news. And now you are in the know. A couple things that will keep you in the know as well. A few things you won't want to miss posted at chefjamie.com this week. Like my weekly dish, it's a summer tomato and goat cheese gratin. It is summer's ripe tomatoes paired with tangy goat cheese and then textural panko crumbs. It's a great side dish served alongside chicken or pork, so check it out. You can grind your way to a better burger in my Think Like a Chef feature. You could make a pitcher of spiked basil lemonade or a chilled cucumber soup, of course. And then my truly sweet recipe for the week, a tart strawberry frozen yogurt. For those of you that love the tart style frozen yogurt, it's a homemade version that you do in the food processor. It's super simple and super delicious. So check it out at chefjamie.com. And stay tuned because there's lots more delicious conversation coming up in your radio. Anna Watson Carl is coming up next. She is stopping by to share her yellow table. We'll tell you all about it. And her best tips on planning the perfect gatherings. Plus, Eric Prum and Josh Williams are stopping by. They're teaching us their favorite recipes to infuse great flavor. And McCoyo Shinner is putting some artistry into the vegan lifestyle. You don't want to touch your dial, right? This is amusement for your mouth and your ears. So stay tuned. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I'll be right back. It's divine. It's food and wine. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. So we all know, food lovers, that something magical happens when people come together to share a meal, right? Well, the table has been part of her life for 31 years, and you'll hear the story of the legacy that keeps the yellow table alive, countless dinner parties wherever life has taken her. So clear off your own table and gather a few friends around for good food and conversation because Anna is here to share her best ideas for gatherings. She has compiled them all in a newly released cookbook I know she is most proud of entitled The Yellow Table. And I congratulate you, Anna. It is truly a a love story of your table and your food. Oh, thank you so much, Jamie. I appreciate it. Of course. Tell the story, if you would, of The Yellow Table, because it's been passed down to you, and I know uh, gratefully so. Yes. um, My mom actually 
back before she was even married, she's a single girl living in Nashville, found this table at a furniture store, fell in love with it, borrowed $500 from her dad to purchase the table, which she later paid back, but she had to have it. And then she married my dad. We There were three kids that were born, including myself, and we grew up eating every single meal around this table, breakfast and dinner um, mm-hmm. most days. And we always had other people around the table, neighbors, friends, family. It was just kind of like a constant dinner party. And so I grew up loving that time around the table for conversation and food and and community it's really what taught me what what community and family looked like and she held on to the table in fact it moved into the garage right at some point i read the story and it did <laughs> we were so sad we, we moved houses in high school and we continued to eat at the yellow table but finally when as the kids were growing up and moving out mom graduated to a round table and so the <laughs> yellow table went in the garage it was heartbroken i was gonna say much to your chagrin yes, yes. like mom what are you doing this is so <laughs> precious and when i graduated from college that was my uh graduation present was the table and i was thrilled because i was able to have it in my first apartment in pittsburgh and later in nashville and now it's in my um, apartment in new york city yes and it has been the basis for a blog the yellow table blog has created uh inspiring dinner parties around the world because of your success. And I know that this cookbook was very much a dream for you. So uh, I congratulate you for getting all of it on paper um, and and certainly published in beautiful form. I love that all of your photos are um, bright and vivid, uh, but so many of them, uh, uh, or all of them specifically from a dinner party concept, are based on the yellow table. You know, everything set from the yellow table. So whether you have a yellow table or a brown table or a wooden table, it doesn't matter. Um, I would love if you would start us out the basics for planning a great gathering. First of all, the kind of the most important thing in a great gathering is actually the people that you invite. So um, you want to start with just a great guest list. And it doesn't it doesn't have to be people who all know each other. In fact, I think it's really fun to kind of mix it up. And, yes. and you know, it's nice if everyone knows maybe at least one other person besides you. Um, but, yeah, I love, in, I love thinking about a, a, table, a seating arrangement just so I can kind of put people together who will have fun chatting. Um, so great guest list. You're going to have a great party no matter what, even if you ordered takeout. That, that's key. Um, but assuming you're cooking, which I highly encourage, that's why I wrote my book, um, I think planning a menu um, in advance that is simple, something that has – I generally kind of focus on, on one um, dish that I'm going to put a little more effort into, and then I try and keep all the rest – a little more, a little simpler. So if I, if it's the main course that I want to be the shining star, you know, something that might, might cook for a couple hours or have a few more steps, I'm going to keep the appetizers something super simple, you know, maybe some marinated olives or um, some crostini or things that I can kind of throw together really quickly. And then maybe a really pretty seasonal salad. And then that main course, which might have taken more effort and then do a really simple dessert. I think where people run into problems with dinner parties is when they say, all right, this is my time. I'm going to make something brand new, a, a four-course, five-course meal, all new recipes that are all complicated, and then they kill themselves, and yes. they're like, I'm never doing that again. No, it's true. I agree with you. And, and I believe, and I've said it on this show for a lot of years, when you invite people over for dinner, you should not be testing a new recipe. That's the Wednesday night meal, maybe. But the Saturday night dinner are the dishes that are your signature, that you've mastered, that you feel confident, that you can throw together and know that they're going to come out super. I don't believe that Saturday night dinner party is the time to test uh, a new dish. And I agree with you. I, 
think there's one stellar piece de resistance, you know, the centerpiece of the table. And I believe it's okay to ask your guests, maybe someone brings dessert or someone brings their signature appetizer. Are you good with that? Yes. I, I highly encourage that. And I say that um, in the book as well, because I really think, um, you know, it's it, not only does it make it easier on the host, but it also makes the guests feel involved. And yes. it's fun for them to feel like they've contributed something. So I agree. absolutely. I mean, it's sometimes good to give a little guidance. So you're not getting some sort of like her Indian curry dish <laughs> along with some sort of like, you know, French Provençal. Yes. I know I, per- I personally like to have a theme throughout the meal kind of flavor wise, but yeah, I- absolutely. I think people should, should help out and bring something. I, I agree with you. And it does make everyone feel included. Um, I took the liberty to plan a menu of my own from your recipes um, because I loved the summer inspiration. So I thought we would start with watermelon feta and mint skewers. So much fun. So, yeah, they're so refreshing. I like them. And, and yeah, very easy. You just assemble them on toothpicks. You could use short skewers, I assume. And it's just almost like a, a modernized cube of layers, right? Exactly. Yeah, and they're bite size and... Um, yeah, it's great. It's kind of riff on it's a riff on the salad, you know, that you see places with watermelon, feta, and mint. I mean, it's a it's a flavor combo that's not highly unusual, but I think it's really pretty. Yes. Um, on the little skewers and fresh and summery. Talk up your shaved Brussels sprout and endive salad, please. Oh yeah, I love that. Um, you know, I for the longest time I've been such a big fan of roasted Brussels sprouts, but then one one time I was eating at a, an Italian restaurant and they had a shaved Brussels sprout salad and it was revelatory because I thought you can eat this raw. I had no idea, <laughs> yes. and it had lemon and um, and Parmesan in it, and it was just so light and refreshing. So then I started playing around with that flavor combo at home and then added in some red endives um, and white endives, which I think add a little more crunch and some color, and it's just a salad that I really enjoy. It's very also light and refreshing. Um, I've, had, I've served it to people who claim they hate Brussels sprouts, and they, they didn't even know it was Brussels sprouts. They can't even believe it. They suddenly are converted from that salad. You've made Brussels sprout converts. That's quite a feat. Yes, very impressive. I know it is a feat. I'm really proud of myself. (laughs) It's true. You should be. Um, And then I thought lemongrass salmon burgers with avocado wasabi sauce sounds so good. Those are some of my favorites, honestly. I I love making up different burger combos that actually don't involve red meat. Not because I don't like red meat. Just fun for me to play. And um. The salmon and lemongrass is, is just really nice. It has some Asian flavors in it. And then I like avocado with salmon. Um, and then I thought the wasabi would give a little spice to it. So, yeah, th- those are those are pretty good, I will say. Nice. I can't wait to make Especially them. for summer. Yes. Yeah. And then a Kahlua butterscotch pudding to round it all out. Oh, I'm glad you picked that one. Um, that's actually one of... That is one of my childhood favorites, not the Kahlua part, but we grew up eating <laughs> we grew up eating butterscotch pudding, the jello kind, you know, out of the package. Yes. And it was one of my all time favorite childhood desserts, so I was trying to create a more you know, modern, made from scratch version, and and this is this is pretty pretty close, but with an extra even even better, R- with an extra kick from the Kahlua. Yeah, rich and decadent, right up yes. right up my alley. I love that you mentioned at the close of the book that the last thing you should do before a dinner party at your yellow table or whatever table you might have is to relax. Keep a bottle of bubbly in the fridge, as you say, and have a glass before guests arrive. I quote, take a deep breath and remember to have fun. Otherwise, why bother hosting, right? Yes, that is so so true. And I truly do usually have a bottle of bubbly in the fridge, which 
I will add, a lot of people may read that and think, well, gosh, isn't she fancy having like a $50, $60 bottle? I don't mean that at all. I'm talking a $10 bottle of Prosecco. It doesn't matter. I just like bubbles. They're festive. They're fun. Yes. And, um, yeah, and it helps me relax and just kind of get in the the party mood because, honestly, once guests arrive, I'm so busy chatting. I don't even hardly have another drink for the rest of the evening. So sometimes (laughs) that's my one. That's your treat. I'll toast you with my cava. And to your Prosecco and, uh, and congratulations. So many words of praise for the book. Um, this is a cookbook after selling out of the limited first print in just six weeks that is now available in the second edition and available with national distribution. So check it out. You can find an excerpted recipe at chefjamie.com from The Yellow Table. You can find The Yellow Table uh, on amazon.com, of course, and you can follow the blog and Anna Watson Carl's Yellow Table Dinner Parties at theyellowtable.com. It was a pleasure, Anna, and uh, I hope that we we land at a table for a dinner party together at some point. I, I so too. I would love that. That would be great. Let's do it. I look forward to it. Congratulations okay. again. Thanks again. More delicious gatherings and fabulous food planned in your radio, so stay tuned. Chef Jamie Gwen, I'll be right back. life create and savor yours or rather infuse it welcome back chef jamie gwen in your radio so eric and josh are back well eric prum and josh williams to be exact you've heard them on this program before in fact they are the creators of the genius mason shaker and also the authors of shake they shared their new perspective on cocktails last time and now they have created the ultimate infusion recipes 50 recipes for infusing oils spirits and waters everything from crafting a garlic confit oil to a peach infused bourbon to cucumber mint water and so grab your freshest ingredients And stay tuned because we are experimenting with how you can best infuse. I'm glad to have you guys back. Congratulations. The new book entitled Infuse, by the way. Um, Fabulous. Thank you. Thanks for having us back. Okay. So um, let's talk about this idea that the sum of all of these different parts results in something wonderful, as you say, right? Because I love roasted garlic. And I like olive oil, but roasted garlic, olive oil is just so delicious. So let's start with oils, Josh, if we can. This idea of infusing oils can be done multiple ways and with uh, different qualities or styles of oil. So start us off. Yeah, and and we sort of divide up and fuse into those three sections. And, and those are really our favorite base liquids to use to take ingredients and, and imbue those flavors into the, the base liquids. Um, oil itself is a, is a special uh, medium for infusions. Yes. It's, it's relatively thick and viscous, and it, it oftentimes will take some, some physical effort to get the flavors into the, uh, into the oil. So one of the methods that we use that you mentioned to sort of get the maximum amount of flavor into infused oils is muddling. So borrowing from the cocktail world, um, using a, a muddler to break down ingredients 
and get as much flavor out of those ingredients as possible. I think that's interesting. I'm going to ask you to pause there for a second because in a very traditional method, the first infusion I was taught early in my culinary career, if you could call it that, is the idea of heat as the element to infuse the flavors. And I noticed you do very little of that. The muddler comes in very handy to uh, take that basil flavor and have the oil absorb it. Do you think the flavor is that much more potent or rich because of the muddler? You know, we use both methods for for infusing, so both hot methods and sort of the cold methods. Mm -hmm. I err on the side of of using the cold method because you maintain the fresh uh, the fresh flavors yes. of ingredients like basil or fresh herbs uh, when you use them in their raw form. Interesting. So when you heat up a leaf of basil, oftentimes you'll you'll lose some of those essential oils and right. and fresh notes that you get if you keep it uh, raw. Okay, and not only a muddler, but the idea of shaking. We know you guys like to shake, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, you're shakers, movers and shakers. Um, but the mason jar comes in handy here as well. You mentioned the muddler. And then you also talk a lot like the spicy Calabrian chili oil, which I I love the idea of, of making your own... Uh, chili oils and giving them as gifts of food or planning now for Christmas or making your own just to cook with or drizzle with. Um, But the shaking method works as well. Yeah, definitely. And sort of after you break down those ingredients, whether it's muddling or with that chili oil, we grind chilies down into into a relatively coarse grind you can shake your infusions to basically agitate them and and you're increasing the amount of surface area that hits the liquid and and speeding up your infusions so you can actually get a a relatively strong infusion in a short amount of time that way. And what kind of oil? Do you use olive oil as your base or do you choose an oil that has less of its own flavor entity like uh, canola or safflower or sunflower, because then the flavors that you're infusing come alive? What is your preference? It really depends on the types of ingredients that you're using. So most of the time, we'll use a relatively uh, neutral oil like canola or an extra virgin olive oil. But sometimes if you want to produce a, a more flavorful infusion, you can use oils that already have some really strong flavors. So talk to us, if you would, about infusing spirits. Yeah, sure. And, and that's sort of where we got our start is, is back in college making um, infused peach bourbon. Uh, we went to the University of Virginia and in the South. You know, peaches peak during the summer and, oh, yes. and we needed a new use for all of the peaches that we had left over. And so we started infusing bourbons. And, mm. you know, we found that alcohol and spirits in general... Uh, produce very powerful and and delicious infusions. Um, The alcohol tends to speed up the infusing process, Mm -hmm. so you can get a uh, a relatively quick infusion, or in the case of the beach bourbon, we actually let it go for a pretty long time, so a couple weeks, um, to develop some really, really great deep flavors. And it's easy to do. It's bourbon and peaches, right? And as long as you um, peel and pit and slice the peaches and you combine them with good Kentucky bourbon, of course, in a mason jar um, and seal it and shake it, like you say, and then just let it rest. 
the fruit itself really and the alcohol does all the work for you. It really does, and and that was sort of the the magic behind infusions that you mentioned at sort of the outset. That you know, it's really only two ingredients, and the uh, the the magic that happens is the amount of time and and the way that they infuse together, and the result is is pretty. Pretty tasty. We're infusing great flavor with Eric Prum and Josh Williams. More oils and spirits and flavorful waters right after the break. We're back, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio as we dish on the new cookbook release entitled Infuse. We're creating great flavor, and Eric and Josh are here. I can't wait to make your roasted pineapple mezcal. That's my, my personal favorite. Oh, really? Out of the entire book, I think that's my the one that I make the most often at home. Okay, well, then I might call you for a couple tips, but it looks really awesome. I make a roasted pineapple ice cream, and... That's... We could combine the two, you might be onto something. I was going to say, we could meet up and we could share. And then um, last but not least, leave us with this. I love the idea of cooling down during hot summer days with an infused water. And you could buy a fancy Lucite infuser where, you know, the cucumber uh, rests somewhere flowing within the water. But I much prefer the idea of making a cucumber mint water in 30 seconds in a mason jar and then showing off to all my friends. Yeah, it's it's a much more hands-on and and uh, and DIY uh, culinary approach, it. right? Yeah, it's a more culinary approach to the the infusing process and how we make that is is just muddling uh, fresh cucumber and mint and limes in a uh, in a 32 ounce mason jar, uh, filling it with spring water, capping it and giving it a quick shake and you're you're ready to go. So mm. it's a very quick infusion and one that we really love in the summertime. Yeah, what a super sipper. I like that very much. Um, I'm very delighted by the book because I love this idea of, of canning or putting things up, but at the same time, quick infusions, full fabulous flavor, making use of the season's bounty is really what you're all about. Um, the book is called Infuse and written by, as you heard, the college best friends who met on their first day at the University of Virginia and now the proud partners at W&P Design, the company they co-founded in Brooklyn in 2012, creating innovative designs like the Mason Shaker. In fact, um, you have the final word, Eric. With that said, what is the next patent or invention that we can look forward to. Can you give us a sneak peek? Absolutely. Well, it's on the uh, it's on the cover of the book that we're talking about. Yes. It's the mason jar infuser, our mason tap tool uh, that we use uh, for our infusions. So it's a stainless steel product that attaches directly to a mason jar, and it allows you to create the infusions in the actual uh, mason jar and then to it, it turns the jar into a simple storage device and pour spout. Um, so it actually uh, has a draw hole in it that gives a very even pour. So if you're making an infused bourbon and pouring a uh, small glass, or if you're uh, making an infused oil or dressing and you want to apply it evenly on uh, some food, it's actually the uh, tool and the product that would be used uh, to do that. And it's really helpful as well because 
you're able to actually see what you're doing when you're creating an infusion in a mason jar, and you've also got both the metric and imperial measurements on the jar. Yeah, so cool. it gives you a very visual way to create and then serve uh, those infusions. Yeah, super smart. Super, super smart. Congratulations. I hope that you gentlemen will keep inventing and keep delivering your delicious results as well. At masonshaker.com, you can find lots of inspiration. Gentlemen, come back again soon, please. And um, cheers to summer. Cheers. Thanks for having us. <laughs> of course. There's more delicious conversation in your radio. Don't touch your dial. Chef Jamie Gwen. I'll be right back. Sharing ideas, tips, and tricks to help make every day more delicious. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Okay, so veganism is hot. It is. The idea of eating lower on the food chain has risen in popularity so much so that tempeh and tofu are available at just about every supermarket across the country. You've come a long way, vegan. Today, the vegans that you might meet are urban hipsters, they're suburban moms, they're college students, even professional athletes, because it's not just steamed vegetables, brown rice, and lentils anymore. And to prove that delicious fact, joining me is vegan chef Miyoko Shinner. Miyoko's passion is to entice you with a plant-based diet, and as the host of the PBS successful series on eating vegan as a four-time cookbook author and the founder of a vegan cheese company, she is committed to that culinary plight every day. So with the release of her newest cookbook entitled The Homemade Vegan Pantry, Miyoko is here to dish, and I'm glad to have you. Welcome. Hello, Jamie. Hello. I'm so happy to be with you on well, the radio. Thank you. Yes, and I'm glad to have you, Miyoko. Okay, um, l- let's you know clear the air, if you don't mind, Miyoko, uh, right at the start. Um, I am not a vegan, but you knew that, right? Um, I respect your choices. I find the pantry very fascinating because from the likes of the book, to me, you're not missing anything, but we'll get to that. Um, veganism, define it for us, if you would, please. It's essentially hardcore vegetarianism, right? Well, I guess that sounds like a sort of a political take on it. <laughs> Sorry, it does. You know, it can be described as a lifestyle that issues uh, all animal products okay. uh, for various reasons, including uh, animal welfare, uh, in other words, compassion towards all creatures on this planet, mm-hmm. uh, caring for our environment because eating lower on the food chain uses fewer resources, yes. and also preserving our own health. So it's got many, many reasons. But it is really just about embracing a lifestyle that um, in, in does not include animal products. Okay, and, and I respect that, and I think there's a wonderful way to find a balance for whatever it is individually each of us strives for in a very personal way. Um, but I will tell you that my life would be far less happy without mayonnaise in it. <laughs> well, it- that's not hard to <laughs> resolve at all. I've got three recipes for mayonnaise in my, uh, my book. Yes, I, I love this idea of making your own staples. And of course, from a vegan perspective, um, you're very masterful at it. So talk to us about that. I mean, start at the basics. Ketchup and mayonnaise are very doable to you. 
they are very doable. I mean, ketchup is, you know, is vegan anyway. Anyway, right. But, but it's so easy to make. It's just one of those things. Why would, once you make it at home using the, the easy cheat method that I have, just using tomato paste, it's, you know, you just wonder, why would I ever buy it? Why would you spend the money for something that is so easily made in 15 seconds using ingredients that you probably already have in your pantry? Mayonnaise is one of those things where people have thought for a long time that you need eggs because eggs help to emulsify the oil. But there are so many other things that serve the same purpose. You know, you can use cashews for that. You can use um, uh, tofu for that. Uh, A recent discovery is that you can even use the liquid that you drain off a can of chickpeas to emulsify and make mayonnaise. Really? Okay, so that like sort of foamy, uh, gelatinous... That's right. ...drained liquid from a can of beans. That's correct. That's pretty brilliant. There were other things I learned in the book too, in fact, um, that I, I thought were really interesting. And while I might not make it myself, the skin from the soy that you speak about... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it, it, you know how you, when you're a little kid and you're trying to make hot chocolate and you you heat the milk too much and there's a little bit of skin that forms on top of the milk? Yeah, I think of that like chocolate pudding, too. When we as chefs put plastic wrap directly over the surface of something to keep a skin from forming. That's right. So when that skin forms, when you heat soy milk, you can lift that up and dry it, and that's called yuba. Yuba, then, thank yuba. you. And you can use yuba to make all kinds of things to uh, make a mock a skin of, let's say, fowl, like a poultry skin, or you can make bacon out of it. It actually turns really, really chewy and succulent. I thought it was so interesting to read about because you can actually buy Yuba, you speak about, or you can make it yourself. Uh, but the the many uses of it are brilliant. You even make meringue in a vegan style. And I was interested to learn that flaxseed soaked, right? And what's left of that creates the same viscosity of egg whites? That's right. Yeah. And you can use it like egg whites and lots of things. In the book, I use it to make omelets. Hmm. Um, I use it to make, you know, actual meringues that you bake. Um, you can beat it up and make a mousse out of it. Um, so there's so many ma- so many uses. In fact, you can even bake eclairs using that. It is uh, the new cookbook release from Miyoko Shinner. It's called The Homemade Vegan Pantry, and it is raising the bar on plant-based cuisine. And it is not only for vegans and vegetarianisms and vegetarians or those practicing vegetarianism, um, also very much so for the growing number of Americans looking to eat lighter and healthier. And if you're interested in a handcrafted approach to food, it is a beautiful one. Check out the excerpted recipe at chefjamie.com, which will link you to miyokoskitchen.com. You can follow her at Miyoko Shinner, S-C-H-I-N-N-E-R. Miyoko, a pleasure. Continued success to you. And thank you for sharing your passion. Thank you so much, Chef Jamie. Of course. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. So that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic inspiration and delicious conversation. I thank you for listening, and I hope that you'll check out ChefJamie.com, where I'm always serving up seconds. I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation. It's another three-ingredient summer recipe, a combination that is guaranteed to brighten up your next backyard barbecue or dinner party or picnic. And I will tell you, this one is so absolutely simply delectable. Did you ever add salt to your watermelon? Well, if you haven't, watermelon is fresh and bright and sweet this season. 
but just a pinch of salt. I like the coarse ground salt. You could use the kosher, but if you have the Malden or fleur de sel, even better. A pinch of salt on cubes or wedges of fresh watermelon intensifies the sweetness and the juice. And then I like to sprinkle over a few fresh mint leaves from the garden. And you have this absolutely delicious, fabulously fresh finish to your meal. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I'll see you this week at ChefJamie.com and meet you here next Sunday. I hope you continue to eat well. (laughs) 